Hello and welcome to this Unorthodoxy podcast episode 17. I, I think it's time for some conceptual dynamite. So I'm going to talk about fanaticism and the rise of mass movements and the way that these ideas relate to a number of political issues in the world today. But before I get there, I want to offer a quick sidetrack on journalism, which may seem like an odd thing to do, but you'll see how this fits soon enough. So journalism at its very worst is a bit like treating garbage as treasure. You have, say, the household of the Joneses, who we're all trying to keep up with, and it's running pretty well. Everything is normal and good. Uh, but then, as can be expected, the Joneses have a bit of trash that they need to dispose of from time to time. And it really is just that. It's trash. So let's say for the sake of argument that on this one occasion, the Joneses discard a ragged item of clothing that happens to have been made by a company that has recently been found to be using slave labor or uh, child labor uh, in a sweatshop in, in India. So on this one occasion, the trash has a bit of a sordid history. Then imagine that someone, in this case it's a journalist, comes along and digs through the trash and finds that item of clothing. Oh my God, they say, we knew it, we always knew it. The Joneses are horrible people. Just look at how they purchased clothing that was made by exploiting little children in India. The journalist doesn't have to get the whole story to create his or her journalism because as far as they're concerned, they know the only thing that counts, which is a symptom. And they write about it and they put it into newspapers and on websites and suddenly everyone knows exactly what the Joneses are like. They are to be despised more than all others because of that one item of clothing. Now, let's say that this item of clothing was a fluke that it was actually an anomaly in the life of the Jones. I mean, already it's, it's something they discarded and put into the trash. So typically, the Joneses live good lives, and they hate the idea of exploiting children in India, and they really didn't know that what, what they were doing when they bought this item of clothing. Maybe they, they bought it and only later found out, or maybe they never found out and were informed by this nasty journalist. Well... All the backstory, it doesn't really matter to this type of journalist. In fact, this is precisely what the worst journalism does. It treats the exception as if it is the rule. It takes the odd thing, the thing that doesn't fit with everything else, and makes it absolute. Now, I know you may think that I'm being unfair to journalists. I'm not saying that all journalists do this sort of thing. Thankfully, really good journalism does exist. But there does seem to be a bias built into journalism these days that makes this sort of thing fairly acceptable. This digging through the trash instead of paying attention to the normalness of the household. It's a bias, you could say, that is built into the human brain. People are generally attracted to what is interesting. And what is interesting is usually a bit out of the ordinary, a little anomalous or freakish even. Everyone drives on the highway quite calmly, for instance, and they're caught up in the banal, uh, listening to the radio, whatever it is, but then there's an accident on the highway, and then, even when no lanes are obstructed, people have to look, and so they slow down, and and it wrecks the traffic of everyone else, uh, it causes huge traffic jams. It's an unusual event, so it's interesting, and it captures their attention. 
And soon, it's the very thing that defines their whole journey, even though it was just part of the journey. The mistake, though, is to treat the accident as if it is the absolute, to make the trash into the whole story. And this is what journalism does all the time. Unfortunately, as I see it, journalism of this kind is the norm. You don't get news headlines like, Today in the household of the Joneses, absolutely nothing extraordinary happened. Even though this would actually be more reflective of the general trend of the Joneses' lives and of the lives of everybody else. We discover that the Joneses are rotters before we even know that they existed. So the story you read is not about Mr. Jones and the way that he read the paper at the kitchen table during breakfast or the way that Mrs. Jones packed lunches for her kids or the way that Tommy and Susie had a normal day at school while their parents had a normal day at work. Nope. The story you read is the one about the seedy underside of their lives. They're a bunch of child labor supporters, the lot of them. Okay, so that was probably a a rather long-winded way of saying something fairly simple, but it's the thing that leads me to the thing that I want to talk about, fanaticism and the rise of mass movements. And unfortunately, journalism's predilection for, for rummaging through the trash of the world has aided this. Recently, everyone I know including me, was stunned at the result of the Brexit vote, which was fueled by the politics of a largely racist, xenophobic bunch of people. Not all of the voters who voted in favour of the British exit are racist, but they were pulled along, as I see it, by those who are racist. And in other news, nearly the whole world is now in a flat panic about the fact that Donald Trump stands a genuine chance of being the next US president, despite the fact that he is a complete narcissist and has the intelligence of a piece of moldy bread, which I know is an insult um, to the moldy bread, but it's all very worrying and it all seems very real. And uh, and this same politics of the far right is found in, in other voices in ISIS and Christian fundamentalists and the new atheists and, and a number of others, loud, proud, and completely stupid, but unfortunately impossible to ignore. The trash, instead of being taken to the dumpster, has been used to pollute the screens and papers of billions. The point is, it's all built upon the rule of the exception. The exception has been made into the rule for for a lot of people. And again, the media has helped us. You, You know the slogan, there's no such thing as bad press. Well, it turns out that there's more than an ounce of truth to that. Simply talking about something especially in in the media, is enough to give it credence, even sometimes if you're denouncing it. And I guess that's something that I might be risking while I'm talking about the subject of fanaticism. But part of what I want to do is look at how fanaticism functions rather than to speak about specific fanaticisms. Fanaticism is particularly newsworthy, generally speaking, because it suits the way that journalism, especially radio and television journalism, functions. Part of the problem is that the media is heavily reliant on sound bites. Actually, at one point last year, I was I was coached at a special training seminar at the university that I work at by a journalist. And the point was to teach me and a number of others how to report on our research when we're talking to the media. Apparently, this is going to happen at some point in my career. I, I, I don't know when. So... 
uh, what I did is I spoke about some of my more recent research, which was to talk about zombies and mimetic theory. I've seriously written about this. You can you can check it out online. Um, and at the, the end, the journalist said to me, well, that was okay, the way you spoke about it, but can you maybe say it with fewer words? What happens when you use fewer words is that you start to edit reason. So obviously I have a serious problem with this. You, you cut out nuance. And this, it turns out, is a lot of how, how a lot of journalism functions. A journalists want the sound bite. They want the clip, not the extended version with all its subtleties. And people in the world at large have come to mistake these sound bites for truth. Everything gets taken out of context and they assume, and people assume that that is the whole story. And it really is just the process. In fact, I, I think of, of finding these sound bites is a little bit like the process of, of making the exception, the rule. It's uh, uh, taking out the trash and using that as the way to define the whole existence of the Joneses. My view is that we really, really need nuance. I think that we need to be able to talk about the way that the exception functions, how it works, in order to better understand how to counteract it. Journalism may have made the trash absolute, but it's up to more sensible political voices to calmly put the trash back into context. So that's partly what I want to do here. And I want to do this with reference to a particularly remarkable book, Every now and then I, I pick up a book and when I'm reading through it, I just feel like I've stum stumbled onto some kind of magic, like it's it's conceptual dynamite. I, I don't always have to agree with the book I'm reading, but um, I will have a sense of the profound truth that the book is getting at. And this has happened very, it happens very few times. I mean, often I'm, I'm reading stuff and I go, yeah, I mean, I can see how an argument is working. It's doing really well, but... But very, very seldom does it happen that, that a book just, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Um, I've experienced this kind of awe, this wonder at, at what I'm reading with, with a few books like Anthony de Mello's book, Awareness, which I read in my early 20s. Just, just astounding book, uh, made me, you know, frustrated and angry. And then ultimately I, I agreed with everything in it. Uh, and then Martin Heidegger's Being and Time, which, is of course one of the most important philosophical works of the 20th century and René Girard's Violence and the Sacred completely blew me away and uh, last year or the year before I can't remember um, I was reading Gustave Le Bon's The Crowd which which also was just extremely powerful even though it is driven by a number of very problematic biases but more recently I've been reading through Eric Hoffer's book The True Believer and the subtitle for that book is Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements it's an astonishing book. Uh, even in the books, uh, even in the parts of the book that are problematic, it's filled with profound and important insights. Some of which I want to touch on here. I really, I, I can't recommend the book highly uh, enough. Although you will see, as I have seen, that there are problems with with Hoffer's uh, some of his his assumptions. Perhaps his ontology is a bit wobbly. Anyway, so, so some background on the book may help. Hoffer was a layman, not an academic. He worked at, at, on the docks on the Pacific coast in America during, uh, starting, I think, around 1943. And before that, he was a field laborer and then a gold miner. So this is great. I mean, he's, he's not an academic, but he's clearly got the, the mind of an academic. He, he's trying to really grapple with the world that he's living in. And in this book, The True Believer, 
um, he does this. This book was actually published in 1951, so it's really old. But when you read it now, it feels it still feels really fresh. And it was a book that Dwight Eisenhower recommended to many people during his presidency. In the book, Hoffa does this kind of worrying thing, but it's also kind of kind of extraordinary. He he looks at the history of mass movements, including religious movements like the rise of Christianity and Islam, but also Nazism, fascism, and the Bolsheviks, and he notices that while the core doctrines of these movements are often quite different or radically different, there is a definite trend that allows each movement to take root. The basic idea then is that there have been movements that start like a spark and then gradually grow to engulf the more static and conservative or liberal sensibilities of societies. And these movements, these mass movements, rely heavily on particular circumstances and particular aspects of the psychology of people. Hoffer writes this, he says, Though there are obvious differences between the fanatical Christian, the fanatical Mohammedan, that's the uh, Muslim, the fanatical nationalist, the fanatical communist, and the fanatical Nazi, it is yet true that the fanaticism which animates them may be viewed and treated as one. There is a certain uniformity in all types of dedication, of faith, of pursuit of power, of unity and of self-sacrifice. There are vast differences in the contents of holy causes and doctrines, but a certain uniformity in the factors which make them effective. So he's looking at all of these different factors, but he sees that despite the differences, we need to be, we need to be paying attention to the what unifies them. Before I dive into what makes fanaticism and mass movements function, I need to first foreground my main critique of Hoffa. He is utterly bewitched by modernity, even though he's critiquing others who are also utterly bewitched by modernity. This means that his observations will only take you a little bit into the journey. Um, There needs to be some other kind of framework to complete what he's trying to say. He has this tendency to caricature certain ideologies, for instance, especially Christianity and Islam. But I'm not going to talk here about everything he needs to fix in his worldview. I'm going to focus more on the stuff that I think he gets right. Hoffa begins by pointing to frustration as the source of fanaticism. All mass movements take root because of the frustration of certain people. This may seem like a really simple observation, but it is brilliant because it points out that we're not dealing with truth or consciousness or moral values when we're dealing with fanaticism. Fanaticism is reliant on frustration, which is an emotional impulse. The individual subject feels that his or her life is just not great. And their core impulse is to then get away from this sense of frustration, to avoid it. Although, it should be clear as you get into it that you that um, get into understanding fanaticism that the fanatic never really gets rid of their frustration. It's always the fuel that drives them. The true believer, which is what Hoffa calls the fanatical person, wants to get away from themselves. So Hoffa writes, there is this tendency in us to locate the shaping forces of our existence outside of ourselves. Success and failure are unavoidably related in our minds with the state of things around us. Hence it is that people with a sense of fulfillment 
think it a good world and would like to conserve it as it is, while the frustrated favor radical change. The tendency to look for all the causes outside ourselves persists, even when it is clear that our state of being is the product of personal qualities such as ability, character, appearance, health, and so on. If anything ails a man, says Thoreau, if anything ails a man, says Thoreau, so that he does not perform his functions, if he have a pain in his bowels even, he forthwith, forthwith sets about reforming the world. Forthwith is such a weird word. Uh, that I just, you know, I just don't see that very often. Anyway, so I think this is all a very significant observation. The frustration of the individual may feel like there's something wrong with the world. And while this may be true in a partial sense, it doesn't give us the whole picture. The real truth is everything gets filtered through our perceptions. And if our perceptions are wonky or poor, we will respond wonkily or poorly to our circumstances. We'll assume that everything is circumstantial, for instance, even when it's only partially circumstantial, like the alarm that is going on in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear that. Anyway, uh, we don't see the world the way it is. We see it the way we are. So frustration is there and it breeds discontent. And this discontent is a discontent with the present. So the focus for the, the fanatic must be on the future. Which is why fanaticism tends to be, at its heart, apocalyptic. If you've read anything on ISIS, especially interviews with ISIS members or sympathizers, you will know that the apocalypse is inevitable for them. And they want to be a part of it. They, they're acting in ways that bring the end of the world closer. That's what they see themselves as doing. And they want the kingdom to come closer because they presume that the kingdom isn't within or right here. It's, it's somewhere else. Now... The present is bad for the fanatic, so the future must be amazing. Frustration with the present actually breeds an extravagant hope for the future. It's not a reasonable hope, and it has nothing to do with what will be better or worse for us. It has everything to do with a simple desire for change. And there is a kind of pervasive, overly optimistic idea that any change will do, or any change will be a good change. Unfortunately, only hindsight will reveal that this is not true. If you'll allow me a simplification, it's fairly safe to say that the Brexit vote was just about change, not about what changed. Hoffer writes, faith in the future renders us all receptive to change. The comfortable don't want things to change. They want things to remain as they are. Conservatives, for instance, are insistent that the future should look pretty much like today looks, but with maybe minor improvements here and there. Fanatics definitely don't think like this. They, they want everything to be different. They, they don't want to, they don't know why, or if it's even possible, they just want it. They want it immediately or as soon as possible. Fanaticism is not a friend of patience or reflective thinking, or thinking in general. In fact, Hoffer points out that the fanatic should be wholly ignorant of the difficulties involved in making the future what they want it to be. Experience is in fact a handicap uh, for the fanatic. So experience and thinking are actually not things that uh, fanatics generally possess. You'll notice that most fanatics are much younger. Uh, they're not, they, they haven't 
become very worldly wise. So far, the ingredients for fanaticism then include frustration and a desire for change. But then add to this a passion for self-renunciation. This may seem like a really good thing at first, as in to have a passion for self-renunciation, because it, it matches a trend in spiritual traditions. But the problem is that this self-renunciation gets mixed up in a mad kind of egotism. What happens is that fanatical people see their lives as irredeemably spoiled. They don't regard themselves to have any self-worth, which is why suicide bombing can happen. Their lives in the present suck, basically. So they'll pick anything, any particular, any particularly loud clamor to drown out the murmurings of the self, including suicide. Mass movements attract people who don't really have any interest in their personal careers or even in their personal comfort. The fanatic is someone who wants, in a way, to be totally taken up by a cause. Hoffa writes, faith in a holy cause is to a considerable extent a substitute for the lost faith in ourselves. Hoffa also writes, the burning conviction that we have a holy duty towards others is often a way of attaching our drowning selves to a passing raft. But what looks like giving a hand is often a holding on for dear life. So there you have it. It looks like losing yourself, but it's actually a more ferocious kind of self-preservation. I know what I'm about to say is going to sound really weird and paradoxical, but I think there's some truth in it. No one clings to their life more than a suicide bomber. Their suicide is, as they see it, it's their salvation. It's their road to redemption. Unfortunately, to most of us, it looks a lot like self-annihilation. At first, even to the fanatic, it looks like serving others. Their fanaticism, their mass movement is about serving others. But... It really is self-serving. Fanaticism, you could say, is a defense mechanism. When our individual interests and prospects don't seem worth living for, we are in desperate need for something apart from ourselves to live for. The movement promises to remedy this, but it may actually just be a way to cover it up. The same can be true for immigration, actually. And this is something that I've seen in South Africa. It's a really pervasive phenomenon a lot of immigration happens. Often immigration is a substitute for a mass movement or for fanaticism. Immigration also presents the possibility of a brand new beginning, a a new life, a blank slate. Every mass movement functions like immigration. It's a movement towards some kind of promised land. Again, the fanatic doesn't like the present. He completely disdains the present. And this disdain for the present is so ferocious that it actually manages to exert an influence on people. Think of Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again. It's it's kind of a smart piece of propaganda for fanatics because it dismisses the present as being a mistake, as something that needs radical change. Its subtext is that America isn't great. You'll notice also that there's a sense provided of an ideal past, that everyone is nostalgic for. But nostalgia is really just a kind of collective amnesia. There's no ideal past in reality. There's only the fact that we've forgotten about what sucked about the past. The present isn't so bad, really. It's where we live. But this is not 
what a fanatic sees. He or she sees only the fact that the present is awful and that the distant past must have been better and that the future can be good again. The trouble is, when fanatics get into power, history has shown us that things are only likely to get worse. For everyone, weirdly enough, including for the fanatic. Hoffer says something that strikes me as being particularly poignant. He says that the unemployed are more likely to follow the peddlers of hope than the handers out of relief. Remember that the fanatic sees the present as completely spoiled and ruined, and relief just looks like more of the same, more of the status quo. It, it seems too temporary to, to just get relief. What is desired is radical change, not just a nice handout. It may look like this is all a cry for freedom, in a way. But remember that freedom can be very destabilizing and debilitating to some people. In fact, Hoffer writes that unless a man has the talents to make something of himself, freedom is an irksome burden. Of what avail is the freedom to choose if the self is ineffectual? We join a mass movement to escape individual responsibility, or in the words of the ardent young Nazi, to be free from freedom. Which is an idea that I think gets used in one of the Avengers movies. I seem to recall Loki making uh, some reference to, to this uh, getting getting rid of freedom as, as the ultimate uh, source of liberation, uh, which is very paradoxical. Anyway, so doing uh, what's actually going on is that, that fanatics are obsessed with ob obedience. They want to do the right thing. Uh, even if it looks to most of us like they're doing the wrongest thing ever, it's not freedom that the fanatic wants, but equality and fraternity. Community is actually the main, the main sort of uh, buff or comfort that that the fanatic is seeking. There is an irony here. I'm sure you've noticed it. The fanatic is is often the one most vocal about wanting freedom. I know uh, that one, the one fascist political party in South Africa even has the word freedom in its name. But to be comfortable with your freedom, you have to know who you are. And this is not something that fanaticism encourages. The person who shouts loudest for freedom is likely to be the most unhappy when they get the freedom that they've been asking for. I know that this has been true for many people post-Brexit, it's hard to know what you want. It's it's definitely even harder to, to get what you want, only to discover that you didn't want it in the first place. Um, I know I've gone gone on too long already, but there's, oh, there's just so much to say. Uh, I, could, I could say more, for instance, about how important guilt is in fueling fanatics or how a lack of creativity is profoundly evident in those who glide along with mass movements. I could also talk about uh, the main reason that proselytes or evangelists want to convert others to join them. And the reason is that it's they're insecure about their own beliefs. In a way, getting converts is, becomes the proof that what they're doing is actually the right thing. There's also a lot to be said on, on how a lack of, of a stable family structure or community is pretty much universal amongst fanatics. Hoffer is brilliant at pointing out that the rising mass movement attracts and hold a follow, holds a following not by its sensible doctrine or promises, but by the refuge it offers from the anxieties, barrenness, and meaninglessness of individual in existence. 
It cures the poignantly frustrated not by conferring on them an absolute truth or by remedying the difficulties and abuses that made their lives miserable, but by freeing them from their ineffectual selves. And it does this by folding and absorbing them into a closely knit and exultant corporate whole. So much can be said about all of this and there's so much more. Again, I just want to recommend go to Hoffa's book and 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 read it and and see if it sparks a couple of of uh, epiphanies. I'm sure it will. But what I want to do is conclude about talking about the role of hatred in the fanatic because even this has some surprises. Fanatics require the co- cohesion of their mass movement. Otherwise, what they'll do is they'll just shift to another cohesive mass movement, which it turns out isn't so difficult. Mass movements are actually largely interchangeable, like the addict who trades his addiction to gambling for an addiction to CrossFit. Uh, I actually had a friend who did this. The fanatic tends to stay a fanatic, even when his or her allegiances change. If you have fanatical friends, you will know this. The most powerful glue for a fanatical movement is hatred. Hatred, and this is something that Hoffa says, hatred is the most accessible and comprehensive of all unifying agents. Hoffa says another thing. He says that mass movements can rise and spread without belief in a god, but never without belief in a devil. This is such a good insight into into how mass movements fanaticism arises. And it it somewhat explains the rise of, of Nazism and its focus on finding a, a suitable scapegoat, the devil that it creates. And it, it's a concrete devil for them. Uh, completely, I mean, it's total fiction, but it's it, it's enough to, to feel this hatred which unifies the group. Hoffa also says that we do not usually look for allies when we love. Indeed, we often look on those who love with us as rivals and trespassers, but we always look for allies when we hate. Such a good insight. I mean, that's actually kind of preemptive of mimetic theories, uh, discoveries. Hoffa points out that the hatred of the fanatic is always a projected self-contempt. Remember that self-contempt is at the heart of all of this. It's the fuel for the frustration of the fanatic, but it manifests as an inability to, to access the self. Hoffa notes that our hatred comes less from a wrong done to us than from the consciousness of our helplessness, inadequacy, and cowardice. In other words, from self-contempt. When we feel superior to our tormentors, we are likely to despise them, even pity them, but not hate them. This fits with a number of other ideas that I've encountered uh, around talk about fanatics and fanaticism. The fanatic doesn't want to destroy his enemy because he thinks his enemy is inferior to him. He wants to destroy his enemy because he envies him. The fanaticism is able to continue because the fanatic doesn't allow himself the time or effort to figure out precisely what it is in his enemy that he envies. What makes hatred particularly poisonous is that it fosters lies and violence. I mean, I suppose it, it... does a lot of terrible things. Hoffer notes that there is no sure way of infecting ourselves with virulent hatred toward a person than by doing him a grave injustice. The corollary to this is also true. When we serve and love our enemies, we lose any need to destroy them and our group cohesion becomes less important. 
love, it turns out, might be the remedy to all of this. Um, of course, lies beget lies for the fanatic, and all the while, self-understanding is rendered impossible. In fact, it's this point that I want to leave you with. It's the simple idea that fanaticism is pri precisely the opposite of spirituality, because a healthy spirituality cannot exist without self-understanding, and in fact, it cannot exist without self-love. It cannot exist in what Kierkegaard calls the untruth of the crowd, in the frenzy or the panic of bodies caught up in mass egotism. It can only exist and thrive in the one who humbly steps away, who reflects, pauses, interrogates, and wonders.